to Sense and Sensibility, the Inflation Guy podcast. I am Michael Ashton. I am the Inflation Guy, and I am your host. On today's podcast, we're going to talk about measuring inflation. How do we do it? How should we do it? How is it done? I get asked a lot when I go on to other podcasts about how the CPI is measured, how the consumer price index is measured, or how the personal consumption expenditures index is measured. Do they measure inflation well? You know, how do we go about actually doing that? Why do they differ? If we're measuring inflation when we measure it with CPI or PCE or or PPI, why do these things differ? If there's if they're all measuring inflation, why don't they all say the same thing? And for that matter, are are any of them right? Or are they all lies? Stuff the government makes up. Or if not lies, are they just kind of useless because they don't measure what they're supposed to measure or what we think they're measuring? Now now normally when I'm answering this question, I I kind of basically just describe the way it's done. And, and that's useful, but I think on this podcast, I'm going to do it a little bit differently. And maybe this is, helps it to be a little, bit, a little bit more intuitive or bring it home a little bit better. And I'm going to, let, let's walk together through how we would create such an index ourselves. You know, how would we go about building such an index? And, and so the first thing that I think we would have to answer if we were going to build an inflation index is what is it that we want to measure? And all of the inflation indices essentially answer this, this question in some way and, and not in the same way. For the CPI, and I think as a reasonable starting point, we would say that we would like to measure a change in our cost of living, whatever that means, and let's go figure out what it means. So if we were going to start doing this, maybe we start by looking at, at everything we buy. Uh, that's, a, that's part of our cost of living. And we towed up all the prices of, for everything that we paid, all the money we spent, and that's our cost of living. And that kind of makes some intuitive sense that that's what a cost of living is. Or is it? Suppose that you get insurance paid by your employer. Okay, a lot of people have health insurance that is at least partly paid and maybe sometimes entirely paid uh, by their employer. Is that your cost of living? Well, no, it's not your cost at all. But if you lost your job, then you'd have to replace that insurance. You'd have to replace that cost and it would cost something. So is it in or is it out of our index? That's what we call a scope question, and it's one of the first questions you have to answer when you're going to go create an index. All indices have to make this decision of what's in scope and what's out of scope. So with the consumer price index, as its name suggests, it includes only consumer paid items. And so in that example that I just gave about employer paid insurance, that's out of scope and is not included in the consumer price index. The Personal Consumption Expenditures Index, the PCE, it includes everything you consume no matter who pays for it. So if you're on Medicare, uh, that 
that counts because it's it's something you're consuming, even though it's paid for by the government. Now, I like the CPI because it's closer to what we actually feel. You know, if I don't actually pay for something, then it, you know, if the government, if if the government or my employer is paying for something, it doesn't feel like a cost to me. And and maybe in an economic sense it is, but it doesn't feel like it. So that's one of the reasons I prefer the consumer price index. The Fed likes the PCE because it captures more of the economy. It captures not just the stuff you're paying as a consumer, but everything that affects you, uh, no matter who's paying for it. So anyway, we, we've made our decision on scope and uh, somehow. And, and so now we're going to look again at all the spending. And we'll say, if it's in scope, the way we've decided what the scope is, then we're going to add up the cost of living. Okay, All the money we spent on everything that's in scope. And then next year, we'll do the same thing. Well, now we run into another problem. We bought different things in year one and year two. Nobody buys exactly the same things from year to year. One year, you're totally into kale. And the next year, you're totally into chocolate. And so you just buy different things. And so how then are you really measuring a change in your cost of living? I mean, your your cost of living changed, but it's not inflation. There's... There's the inflation part, but there's also the buying different things part. So this is, again, a problem for an index creation. And and so we resolve that by creating a reference basket. And so what we would do in our examples is maybe we say, okay, whatever I bought last year, that's going to be the reference basket. I will reprice everything this year as if I was buying it anew. And so we have last year's items and weights at today's prices. Obviously, then my total change in the cost of living now consists of two things. One is all the stuff that I bought previously, uh, all the things I bought this year and bought last year, and the change in those prices, uh, and the change in the basket itself, the change in the stuff that I bought. So now the index is a little bit, it, it now is deviating a little bit from what it feels like to me. Now the amount that I spent in year two compared to year one is not all inflation. It's not all a change in, it's a change in my cost of living, but it isn't all applicable to measuring a change in the cost of living, which we, which we are sort of defining here as being the cost of the same standard of living. Well, the way that indices deal with this, for example, the Bureau of Labor Statistics in creating the CPI does this by by survey, surveying every two years um, uh, lots of people to figure out what the weights in the consumption basket should be. And so those things change gradually over time with with tastes and as people spend more of more money on medical or more money on apparel or less money on vacations or what have you. And and taking that survey every two years uh, seems like a reasonable interval. It's it's long enough to mean that you don't have you're not always taking a survey, but it's it's short enough that it'll capture most of these changes in tastes with some sort of reasonable fidelity. When you run into something like COVID, as we've just gone through, then of course that throws an entire 
wrench into the works because now you know in a very short period of time your consumption basket could change quite dramatically and in fact it did change quite dramatically for a lot of people when you could no longer go out to a restaurant and so expenditures on restaurants went way way down because there you couldn't go to one well this is something, of course, then that you can go examine it, and people have examined it. There were some researchers at Harvard who who looked at at what the real inflation would have been, taking into account the fact that we are consuming different things, and sort of making that that adjustment, and and so making that ad hoc change in the reference basket is something that you can do because we do preserve all the individual price data for all the things that we buy. And so we can sort of change those weights and see if we spent less on meals out and more on meals in the home, we can see what effect that has uh, on, on our index. But to create the index, you do have to make at some point a decision of what that reference basket looks like and it needs to not change all the time or, again, you conflate the changes in the prices of the stuff you buy with the changes in the stuff that you buy. Okay, so the next step. Now we've got, we figured out our scope and we figured out among those things in our scope, what's the reference basket? What are the weights of all those things that are in scope? <clears throat> and so now... We go to the list uh, in year two, and we're going around to sample all these items in our basket. And we discover that we got we're, when we're getting to tires. Okay, so you spent money on tires for your car, and we get to tires, and we discover they don't have the same tires anymore. That the new tires are twenty five percent more expensive, but they last twice as long. But the problem is that the thing that was in our reference basket isn't in our reference basket anymore. The thing that we are forced to buy has a higher price. It's 25% higher in price. So how much of that is inflation? You got more because you now have tires that can go twice as far and, and you paid more. But because you got more, because there's higher quality here, you should pay more. It's not, it would be unreasonable to think you should get more for exactly the same price. And so you kind of have to make some sort of quality adjustment. You know, I, the price went up 25%, but gosh, I got twice as much. So in a way, the price kind of went down. If I thought about the tires as the amount I had to pay for a mile of tires, then you can see that now what I have is I have twice as many miles and it only cost me 25% more. And so, you know, that is quite a quite substantial improvement in quality for only a modest increase in price. My standard of living got much better for only a small increase in price. And so that actually is deflation the way we would look at this in this basket. Now, that's true even though you had no choice. There were no, you couldn't buy the old tires. If you could have bought the old tires, then then that's in the reference basket. And and that's easy. We just look at those old tires. We look at the change in price. But in this particular case, this, this example, we don't have the old tires. They're not available anymore. And so we're forced to buy these better tires. 
So it's a forced improvement in your lifestyle. Now, this, as you can imagine, is very controversial because maybe you didn't want those better tires. Maybe you like to buy tires more frequently for some reason. Um, but also we, we measure, different people measure quality differently. And this is what really irks people about quality adjustments and hedonic adjustments. They say, you know, I have this phone now that has unlimited data, but, you know, I don't care. I didn't need unlimited data. So why am I paying for this unlimited data? I'd like to pay for just the four gigabytes that I used to use. And so it was a forced improvement there in my lifestyle, but something I didn't want or I didn't value it very highly. So why do I need to take the Bureau of Labor Statistics? I have to take their word as to what that quality was worth. And so that's why this is really controversial to a lot of people. Hedonic adjustment really, really rankles a lot. But here's the question. How would you like us to do it? What is you, you have to do it. There has been a change in quality and that that informs the value you're getting for the price. So you have to make a quality adjustment somehow. What's the right way? You can't say it's different for everybody. And so now everybody has their own CPI index. You have to make some sort of judgment. I think that, um, you know, that's that's a question that people can reflect on. Clearly, they don't like the way the BLS does it all the time, uh, but, uh, but you do have to make that, that call. And, and finally, thinking about this index we're creating, you know, there are some things that you consume, but you don't pay for directly. So an example here, and I'm not going to go into this in depth because it's, it really is its own episode, uh, is housing. And in how you, if you own your home, how you consume the services that your home offers you. Like I said, that's a lengthy discussion and it's something else that really upsets people is that the whole notion of owner's equivalent rent. We will deal with that on, you know, on a future episode, but I will let you know that I just recently wrote an article and it's on my blog uh, at mikeashton.wordpress.com, and it's in one of the upper tabs, Inflation and Real Estate. So if you go to that site, there's sort of the main blog, and then there are tabs across the top, Inflation and Real Estate, and I have in there a section, Measuring Housing Inflation, Why the BLS Method Makes Sense. And again, we'll deal with this on a future a future podcast, but, but I make the argument that very very clearly there, I think. And so uh, if you just can't wait, that's a place you can go and uh, and get it. We call those imputed prices, prices that you don't actually pay with cash out of your pocket, but you get some benefit from. And we have to figure out what that costs in an economic sense. So there's our index. So these are the decisions that you have to make when you're creating an index. You have to choose your scope. You have to choose your reference basket. You have to figure out how you're going to deal with quality changes in that basket over time because people because the same items aren't always available. You have to figure out how you're going to deal with imputed prices. 
And I haven't talked about all the quantitative things. You have to choose how you're going to construct the index mathematically because, let's face it, that would be really boring for a podcast. But I guess the, the point I want to make is you have to make those decisions. If it, You might disagree with how the Bureau of Labor Statistics does it, but you have to make the decision. Now, I personally think the BLS does it honestly. I think they do it transparently. You can go to their website and there's all kinds of papers about the treatment of owner-occupied housing in the CPI and, and how they deal with, with sales and, and, and things like that, how they handle apparel. Whatever you want to know, there's a the BLS Handbook of Methods is available on the BLS website, bls.gov slash CPI, and you can get all that information. So I think it's very transparent, and I, I don't really have a major problem with the, the CPI. But the question then is, why does it feel to us like inflation is so much higher than it is when we measure it this way? You know, if, we, if we're measuring it honestly, you'd think we get a number that makes some sense and that feels right. And this is kind of interesting and neat. There's a reason that inflation doesn't feel right to us. There's actually a whole set of reasons that have to do with cognitive biases and how it is that we perceive things. If you think about this exercise that we've just gone through, our basic goal was to come up with a cost of living index, something which, which measured how our cost of living the same lifestyle changed from one year to another year, even though... We, our lifestyle is it in fact changing. And, but the fundamental construct is that we're going to go buy thousands of items and services and we're going to buy them again the next year and we're going to tote up all those prices in some way and include some and adjust for some and whatever and come up with this index. And, and so, Unlike something like unemployment, which is very easy to kind of get a, a visceral sense for unemployment, inflation is, is fundamentally difficult to get your arms around mentally. So for unemployment, when, the, when the, the government says the unemployment rate went up, you can kind of get a feeling for for how true that is because you can kind of look around at all your friends and notice that a few more are out of work or a few more are working. We kind of have an idea that whether or not that the percentage number is right, the direction always kind of seems to make some sense. But that doesn't work with inflation because we're measuring lots and lots of, of transactions. And that the fact that we're doing that and we're, we're measuring some things that we are buying a lot you know, frequently and some that we're buying very infrequently but are larger purchases, all those things kind of come into a mix in our mind and, and sort of confuse everything because we have all these shortcuts that we take in our brains to help us understand things. So, for example, there's this concept of loss aversion. And, uh, and that means that we tend to encode painful things differently from the way we encode pleasurable things. And, and so in the context of inflation, what that means is when you go to buy something and you notice that his, its price has gone up, that hurts. And you immediately encode that in your brain as inflation 
that darn storekeeper just raised my prices. But when the price goes down, that tends to be, that's a good thing. You don't tend to remember it as long. And to the extent you remember it, you think of it as good shopping. You got a, you got a bargain. And, and so you can see something that goes up and down and up and down and up and down is you're going to encode that as inflation, even if it net doesn't change very much. Because every time it goes up, you're going to say inflation. And every time it goes down, you sort of forget about it because of this concept of loss aversion. And so one great example of this that I like to bring up is gasoline. Think to yourself, think back 10 years and tell me, do you think gasoline prices today are higher or lower than they were a decade ago? Now, I should say that we're making this uh, podcast on September 4th, 2021. So if you listen to this three years from now, this may or may not be true. But if you look back you will find that 10 years ago, gasoline prices were higher than they are today. We have had disinflation when we've had deflation in gasoline prices over the last decade. Now, you can ask a, you can ask 100 people that question, and you will not get 80% of them saying that, oh, no, gas is cheaper than it was 10 years ago. There's nobody who feels that gas is cheaper because recently, it, gas prices have been going up. But if you look at the charts, you go look, it's about 30 cents a gallon cheaper than it was a decade ago. I think that's amazing to a lot of people, but it's it's because of the way we remember prices, we remember inflation. Now, there's another effect, and that is the the recency effect. You know, we tend to remember things we bought recently and uh, better than we've we've uh, we remember something we bought a while ago. And, and we tend to overweight those things. And so there was a study a number of years ago that, that showed in the uh, UK, I believe, that uh, women uh, had a systematically higher view of what inflation was than men. And, and the researchers kind of puzzled that, that out for a while and concluded that, that that's because that women, at the time they were doing this study in the UK, did most of the shopping at market. And, and as a consequence, they, they saw these price increases. And again, they go up and they go down. When, when, they, vo- when, when they vary, that, that gets remembered as inflation. But they saw those things much more frequently and much more recently. And so, whereas the men were making the large infrequent purchases, and so the men tended to be more accurate because what they were buying was a larger proportion of the consumption basket because they were making large purchases. Uh, the women made many, many more frequent purchases, but they were smaller. And they tended to therefore believe that prices were inflating more than than the men thought they were. And it was just systematically that way. So there's all kinds of these really interesting cognitive biases. I wrote a paper uh, a number of years ago um, called The Real Feel Inflation, where I, I looked at all, a bunch of these effects. And, and what I argued was that we should have an index separate from the regular from the CPI, which I think does a decent job of, of, of what it's trying to do, but we should have a, another index that measures what people feel inflation uh, is. And, 
and I modeled the idea after wind chill. So if you go outside and it's in the wintertime and it's 32 degrees outside and the weatherman says it feels like 20. Well, how does the weatherman figure out that it feels like 20? Does he poll a whole bunch of people? The answer is no. The weatherman has a formula, which was developed. Actually, there's two different formulas, but that's neither here nor there. Uh, that that uh, where they some researchers studied what does it what does uh, the the wind speed how does wind speed interact with moisture on the skin and the actual temp air temperature how does that combine to create a sensation of a lower temperature than is actually on on the thermometer and it's it's important it's an important number to know what the real field temperature is because you don't dress for the temperature you dress for the wind chill similarly you might argue that it 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 could make sense to invest for the real field inflation figure and not for the actual inflation figure or maybe you could argue the other but the point is that you can come up with with these with two different ways of looking at at the same phenomenon, one of which is measuring what it feels like to you, which has some value and is a useful thing to know. And, and the other is what it really is if we look at scientifically and we simply look at the, uh, the, the, the actual mechanics of what's going on, the actual mathematics of what's going on. Well, I could go on and on because I think the, the issue of measuring inflation and how we measure it is, is something that very few people really understand the mechanics of it at a very deep level, and that creates this suspicion uh, that everybody has that that somebody's messing with our heads. And part of it is our brains are messing with our heads, which makes sense because that's where they are. But I hope you found this useful. I think that it is important to understand what inflation is and how we measure it and and how our perceptions might differ from the way we measure it. Because at the end of the day, if we're going to defend our money, we have to know what the enemy looks like and how it behaves. Hey, I really appreciate you tuning in today. If you've got any questions or comments uh, about this topic or anything else in inflation space, you can get the Inflation Guy app and send me a message from within the app or you can go to enduringinvestments.com and fill out the contact form there and I will respond to you. This has been Sense and Sensibility, the Inflation Guy podcast. I am Michael Ashton. I am the Inflation Guy. I say it again, defend your money. If inflation is coming for you, remember, you know about it.